We're very glad to have such a robust crowd for to uh, hear Philippa's talk this afternoon. Uh, Brian Levac is going to introduce our speaker, but I wanted to say just one thing. Uh, in the series, The Oxford History of the British Empire, when we came to selecting the uh, editor for a voice for a book, the series on gender and empire, uh, Philippa came immediately to mind and she organized and eventually published a, uh, an excellent book that forms part of the series of the Oxford History of the British Empire. Uh, just to say uh, a word about Brian Levac, uh, because not only is the chairman of the history department, but I believe he holds the record as the longest serving Chairman of the Department of History at the University of Texas. Can that be true? Not, not really. Yeah, it was Alan. Pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, go ahead. Eight years was enough. <laughs> <laughs> and Martha can relate to that. <laughs> so it is my pleasure to introduce um, my colleague, um, Philippa Levine, um, who holds the Walter Prescott Webb Chair in History and Ideas. You have many of those. <laughs> as well as being, and I don't think I have to say this because I think everybody in this room knows this, she is also the co-director of British Studies. And she, oh, you didn't know that? <laughs> she has been that for Nine years? Eight years? Nine. Nine years. Um, she is a very distinguished uh, historian. And I was reading her CV last night, and it, it really made me tired. <laughs> so I'll just mention uh, some of the books that she has, has written. Um, and the first one, I think, was the first one she wrote on um, historians in Victorian England, and then a book on Victorian feminism, and then the book on the British Empire, which is now going into its third edition. Um, she also wrote a book on policing venereal disease in the British Empire, um, and um, also, she has written a book and edited a book um, um, uh, on eugenics. So she's done many different things. Uh, she's currently writing a book on nakedness. Um, I understand it's going to have a, a, a little more complete title for, <laughs> or like taking your clothes off or something. <laughs> At any rate, and her talk today, uh, which is related to that, um, that project is when I feel very near God, I always feel such a need to undress. That's the quote. Um, and um, then the, um, the, the, the subtitle is Religion, Nakedness, and the Body Divine. Thank you. Philippa, yes. Thank you, Brian, for that characteristically lovely introduction. And I have one other thank you while I'm at it before I start, and that's to Connor Heffernan, um, without whom the slides would not, the two, the two snazzy slides would not be anywhere near as snazzy as the other. So thank you for that technical help. 
I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Genesis 3. Momentous words. We all know what follows. Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, he to till the ground, she to suffer the pains of childbirth, and humans henceforth to expiate this original sin. The Judeo-Christian tradition boasts no monopoly on anxieties around nakedness, but it is vitally grounded in such debates. References to nakedness abound in both the Old and the New Testaments, as well as in commentary on the Bible and in church teachings. Knowledge of and shame over nakedness define original sin and the burdens of the human condition. While Christ's crucifixion, naked on the cross, determined the basic precepts of Christianity. The key biblical moment of the Old Testament is the fall in the book of Genesis, and for the New Testament, it is the crucifixion described in each of the four Gospels. But if the naked body has constituted a constant problem in and for theology, it's nonetheless not easy to characterize or generalize about religious attitudes towards it. Many commentaries categorically see Christianity as the grounding source of bodily shame and negative attitudes. There's good reason to do so. But there's also a powerful counter-narrative stressing nakedness as a sign of purity, of pre-lapsarian innocence, and of future good. Challenges to negative connotations of the unclothed body have come as much from within Christianity as from opponents, whether from sex-positive Christians in the 19th and 20th centuries, or radical Protestants critiquing the growing materialism of the early modern church. While awareness of nakedness has always been central to religious thought and practice, it's always also been open to contestation. Some scholars argue that the Bible exhibits an unequivocal condemnation of the naked form, the common and virulent vocabulary of, of abhorrence or horror conveying the absoluteness of this position. Certainly there is sound and plentiful evidence for such a reading, beginning with the epochal event of Adam and Eve's realisation of their nakedness, the beginning of shame, and its deep association with the unclothed body. The curse of Ham in Genesis 9 derives from his father Canaan's proximity to his own father's nakedness, and throughout the Old Testament, negative associations persist in and beyond the Pentateuch. Ezekiel yokes nakedness, whoredom, and abomination. In Isaiah, Egypt is shamed by the bared bodies of Egyptian captives. Leviticus 20 lays down the penalties associated with nakedness. Such negativity persists into the New Testament, where nakedness is associated with shame and desolation in Revelations, and where clothing another's nakedness is an act of piety and of charity in Matthew. The Gospels make quite clear the humiliation involved in the stripping of Jesus before his crucifixion. Over and over, nakedness invokes shame, loss, humiliation, and vulnerability, as well as a reminder of sin. Yet there are also significant biblical and theological traces of very different attitudes which cast nakedness in a far more affirmative light. The positive attitudes towards nakedness can be found in the earliest history of Christianity. The declaration in Job 1.21 that, and I quote, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither, naturalizes nakedness as an originary state involving simplicity, innocence, and the possibility of ultimate redemption. The close link between nakedness and a pre-lapsarian state of grace unmarred by shame was perhaps most apparent in the practice of nude baptism, where a naked immersion ritual was followed by the donning of a white gown representing a new state of purity. Baptism returned the fallen human to grace, 
recalling Adam and Eve before their expulsion from paradise and invoking the pre-sexual innocence of the child conjured in Job and Ecclesiastes. <coughs> Not everyone approved. The influential Puritan Richard Baxter lashed out at the Baptists, insisting in this, his plain scripture proof, plain scripture proof of 1653, that naked baptism was in violation of the seventh of the Ten Commandments, an abominable wickedness that puts its devotees, he said, on a par with savages, a sentiment that would pervade missionary activity in a later era. But there can be no doubt that the story of Adam and Eve, central as it was to original sin, to shame and disobedience, nonetheless also implied that nakedness could be sanctified. For prior to tasting the apple, the first couple had no sense of shame, but rather reveled in what Milton called that first naked glory. It was this prelapsarian state that sustained ideas of holy nakedness, whether expressed in baptism, the innocence of children, or beyond Christianity, in fertility and other rites. The naked body then could connote both sin and grace, both the carnal and the spiritual. It could symbolize the disobedience that resulted in the expulsion from paradise or the redemption and rebirth consecrated in the baptismal rite. In early modern Europe, a small number of radical Protestant sects began what they called going naked for the Lord or going naked as a sign. And Brian knows much more about this than I do. Their actions, <laughs> their actions were intended as a critique of the materialism they felt was corrupting the church. These early penitents often adopted scant and ragged clothing, if any, alongside bodily scourges, casting off the vanities of the material world, articulating the ancient doctrine of nudus nudum Christum sequi, and embracing poverty and deprivation as a sign of their enhanced spirituality. As early as the 13th century, and often branded as heretics, small sects in Bohemia and in France in particular worshipped naked. And in the middle of the 17th century, a handful of English Protestant groups employed nakedness to articulate a radical critique of the established church. Quaker William Simpson was prompted in the 1650s by his desire to make known, and I quote, the nakedness and shame that is coming upon the Church of England. This radically politicised nakedness among Quakers began early in the 1650s and continued, of course, sporadically into the 1670s, with the practice trickling also into New England here. This form of Quaker protest was preceded by other, what they called Adamite sects, going back, of course, to Adam and Eve, a decade earlier in the turbulent year 1641. Pamphlets denouncing such sects work circulated wildly, uh, widely, sorry, detail, well, and wildly, I suppose, <laughs> detailing the immoral activities of naked churchgoers on the fringes of Protestant Christianity, and often including what David Cressy has called an excuse for pornographic representation. As you can see here, they frequently featured graphic cover illustrations that highlighted not just the mixing of the sexes, but they often featured, and this is exactly what's happening here, a congregant beating the erect member of another worshipper with a large stick. So it's like two large sticks, right? The one that's being beaten and the one that's doing the beating. <laughs> Protestant nakedness in the 1640s was largely an artisanal movement. And at a time when sumptuary laws designated the clothing materials suitable for different classes, a radical aspect of going naked for the Lord, in tune with theological piety, was its equalizing effect. Undressed, the commoner and the aristocrat could not be distinguished. They were alike in the eyes of God, one of the key messages of these radical religious groups. Mm. 
Images of religious martyrdom contemporary with this radicalism combined the same claims to piety with a predilection for prurience. Samuel Clarke's 1651, A General Martyrology, borrowed heavily from John Fox's Acts and Monuments. You may know it as Fox's Book of Martyrs, 1563, its more famous title. But it included many more and many more varied images than had Fox almost 100 years earlier. The illustrations in Acts and Monuments mostly showed martyrs fully and respectably clothed, even as the flames licked at their bodies. But in some editions, there was one lengthily captioned exception. I'll read you the caption in case you can't see it. A lamentable spectacle of three women with a silly infant bursting out of the mother's womb, being first taken out of the fire and cast in again, so all burned together in the Isle of Guernsey, 1556, July 18. And in this illustration, as you can see, the four victims are naked, surrounded by fully clothed male onlookers. Now, Fox's text says nothing about the women being stripped before hanging and burning, and many of the versions of the work do depict the women clothed within the flames, as opposed to unclothed. But some early editions, such as this, the fourth, issued in 1583, made clear that their humiliation and their pain were compounded by their nakedness at the last. Clark's more lubricious text was copiously illustrated with a far greater and imaginative variety, as you'll see in a moment, of tortures than the burnings that characterised Fox's more sober telling. Clark was as respectable a Puritan as one might find, yet the engravings in his book frequently depicted the martyrs unclothed and unflinchingly detailed the broad range of tortures he claimed Catholics inflicted on true believers. In this engraving, um, men have ropes tied to what the book calls their privy members before being hung up. It looks awfully painful. In another, awfully painful too, a woman identified as a mother endures both the whipping, whipping and having, as the text says, her dugs pulled off with pincers. A technique likely borrowed from illustrations of the martyrdom of St. Agatha. And here's two pretty classic um, Renaissance uh, pictures of the um, martyrdom of St. Agatha. Nakedness, then, was a meaningful signifier of the humiliations imposed on pious victims of intolerance. Yet the condemnation of nakedness, however strident, was also, always, also in a sense, always doomed. For clothing, that seeming index of respectability was also always a fatally a reminder of the first transgression, a cloak for shame made necessary because of human disobedience and the acquisition of forbidden knowledge. Now, by the 19th century, we're jumping here quite a way. Uh, expressions of radicalism and erotica were increasingly dissociated, though this did not sever the long-standing connections between religion and nakedness. In the visual realm, we need look only to the canvases of the controversial British artist William. Uh, ah, that's that's um. The, we, we can look then, sorry, to the uh, canvases, of the, the many engravings of William Blake the canvases of the controversial British artist William Etty. This is a very, very early photograph. Etty is, is dead not long after this photograph, and this is like 1830, so very, very early. Or the drawings of the eminently respectable Anglican writer Charles Kingsley at a later date. As the revival in biblical art in the 19th century reignited debate over whether and when nakedness was, nakedness was appropriate, all three of these markedly different artists 
would turn to the condition of human nakedness as they worked out their own belief systems. The mid-19th century, in Michael Wheeler's words, was a high point in the history of the Bible in art in Christian nations. There was leeway for what has been identified as the socially privileged genre of biblical illustration. William Etty, the middle guy, was Britain's preeminent painter, painter of the nude figure in the first half of the 19th century. Born into a modest Methodist household in York, he inched ever closer to Catholicism in adulthood. Elected a royal academician in 1820, he nonetheless found himself on the defensive throughout his career over his emphasis on nudes. Among the themes to which Etty frequently returned was that of Mary Magdalene. There are at least five known such paintings. Here's one of the first. In them, the figure of the Magdalene is almost always fully naked and invariably partially so. She contemplates in most of them the usual symbols of crucifix and skull associated with this theme, signs, of course, of human mortality and frailty, moral as well as corporeal. Yet her nakedness surely connotes in a specifically biblical mode, again, the promise through absolution of a return to paradise via penitence and redemption. Etty's work was part of a revival of interest in the figure of Mary Magdalene, but she was usually, not in Etty's hands, depicted either with a single breast exposed or demurely converted to fully dressed respectability, <coughs> a human rather than a transcendental figure. For Etty to elect to produce starkly naked depictions of the figure was a controversial move, both theologically and artistically, given that this is the early Victorian period. The Magdalene pictures date largely from the mid-1830s, when his reputation, and indeed his notoriety, were both well-established. Etty's nudes earned him equal portions of praise and disavowal. Some critics constantly took him to task for what they saw as his unseemly and fleshly nude women, though in reality, Etty's oeuvre was split fairly evenly, as you can see from this, between depictions of naked women and naked men. And I think this is a particularly interesting picture because it's a highly sensuous male nude. I mean, it really is, for the period, it's extremely unusual. Etty, although principally a history painter, um, in this, the 1828 World Before the Flood, now at Southampton City Art Gallery, like his Magdalens, took up a religious theme based in this instance on lines in Book 11 of Milton's Paradise Lost and depicting the carnality that precipitated the, that precipitated the flood in Genesis chapters 6 to 9. The painting shows, as in Milton's verse, men observing, dancing with and claiming intimacies with women, all of them in various states of undress, as you can see here. The scene, I think, in the painting has a curious stateliness to it, the dancing at its centre seemingly quite formal, rather than bacchanalian, more Jane Austen, if you like, than the Hellfire Club. <laughs> the storm clouds gathering behind the revelry, you can see in the back there, behind the trees, anticipate the coming wrath of God, unheeded by the joy-seekers. Despite the formal qualities of the work, and I think it is a very formal work, and a great deal of admiration for it in some quarters, Etty's critics took exception. A high-minded observer writing for the Literary Gazette commented in stentorian tones that, and I quote, we have already warned Mr. Etty to avoid that deadly sin against good taste, voluptuousness. We warn him again. <laughs> Judging by the Magdalene paintings that followed, Etty showed little interest in following such advice, other than to insist, as he did towards the end of his life, that, and I quote, where no immoral sentiment is intended, I affirm that the simple, undisguised naked figure is innocent. 
in the ensuing decade, the unclothed penitent Magdalene would remain among his favourite themes. In the early 19th century, the visionary poet and artist William Blake depicted, as you see here, Adam and Eve mourning over the body of their dead son while the murderer, their other son, tears, agonised at his hair and flees the scene. Blake's figures, as in the earlier <coughs> pictures discussed, are muscular and naked, textbook examples of his quirky opinions on both the Bible and the human form. Blake envisioned a millennial Christian morality that combined earthly delights and spiritual high-mindedness in equal parts. His biblical illustrations and his visions of both heaven and hell are filled with powerful bodies shorn of clothing, whether they ascend to the skies or fall into the eternal pit. In this feverish, feverishly busy engraving, Laocoon, the texts that you see all around that were added after the figures, Blake surrounded the figure of the Trojan priest, his sons, and the attacking serpents, which is what the, uh, this was done first, uh, with aphorisms in many languages. And in the top right-hand corner, and thanks to Connor, you can see that in red there, and I've also pulled it out there. I did that bit myself. I didn't have to have Connor do that bit. Um, you can see it there. One of them reads, and I quote, art can never exist without naked beauty displayed. It was a position to which Blake closely hewed. In his unfinished poem, The Everlasting Gospel, he speaks of the naked human form divine. And many of his, uh, much of his art, as many of you will know, certainly follows that precept. Blake's conviction that Christian nudity was desirable and holy was shared by the 19th century English cleric and novelist Charles Kingsley. Kingsley imbued many of the drawings he made for his wife, Fanny, with religious meaning. In the early 1840s, he was writing a biography of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, which he planned to present to Fanny on their wedding day, some wedding present. <laughs> Although he made little progress on the manuscript and abandoned it once Fanny's fi family finally agreed to the marriage, there are eight extant drawings from that manuscript. And they include a depiction of the saint, there she is, naked, carrying the burden of a heavy cross on her back. Although Kingsley abandoned this project, he didn't stop drawing. And in a series of sketches, preserved by his wife and now in the British Library, he delightedly depicted himself and Fanny, now his wife, unclothed. And here they are in two um, of these eight drawings. For Kingsley, devotee of muscular Christianity, nakedness and religion were inextricably connected, as they were for Blake. His belief in the redemptive and spiritual qualities of nakedness link him to a long tradition of religious asceticism, and he adopted on occasion, too, the habits of expiation. One of his drawings, fascinating one, I think, shows him prostrate on the floorboards and largely naked in an attitude of penance. He explained the scene on the back and actually down here in the corner as well. Charles is fast, exclamation mark, every Friday at 10 o'clock. But despite this taste for scourging and self-punishment, Kingsley was nonetheless an enthusiastically sexual husband. The letters he and Fanny exchanged were joyous about their sexual union, which they understood as both divine and corporeal, a celebration of all that Christian communion signified. Kingsley had predicted that their marital bed would be, and I quote from his letters, a heaven on earth, in a letter he wrote to Fanny in October 1843, close to a year before their marriage. And we assume that at that point the uh, marriage was not consummated, the non-marriage at that point was non-consummated. <coughs> in an undated drawing, the couple ascend, and this is he and Fanny, ascend heavenward in an obvious state of bliss, their provocatively entwined bodies strongly suggesting that carnal and spiritual bliss were by no means mutually exclusive. 
The banner above the two figures quotes Luke 8.52, in which Christ breathes life into a young girl believed to be dead. Is Fanny in Kingsley's vision perhaps spiritually awakened by sexual congress, achieving the fullness of divine harmony in the arms of her husband? That's how I read it. Many of these 19th <coughs> works were, in effect, visual sermons striving to assert a moral point. One very fine example is G.F. Watt's massive nine-foot spirit of Christianity, in which a clutch of naked, innocent babies, suffer the little children to come unto me, are gathered at the feet of Jesus. Watts described this work as a plea for religious tolerance. It was exhibited in 1875 at the Royal Academy under the title Dedicated to All the Churches. It's now known as the Spirit of Christianity. Nakedness here was the guarantor of a spiritual innocence embodied in the uncorrupted child, safe under the holy gaze. The celebrated photographer Oscar Gustav, I never know how you pronounce his name, I'm going to say Reglander because it's got a J in it, but I don't think that's right. But anyway, his extraordinary composite photograph, The Two Ways of Life, 1857, offered viewers a choice between the paths of vice on one side, you can tell which is which, and of virtue <laughs> on, in his elaborate and technically virtuoso work. While the alleged verisimilitude of its photographic nudity, you can see it down here, made it a controversial work, despite the enthusiasm of Queen Victoria, who bought a copy for Albert. Um, the piece was intended as a moral tale, demonstrating the gulf between idleness and toil, indulgence and righteousness, wrong and right. It's kind of a classic binary um, kind of thing. At the centre of the image is a young man poised to make his choice between these two parts. The sash around his neck resembles a cross, surely not a coincidence in such an allegorical work. To one side of him are industrious figures fully clothed. To the other side, naked figures loll indolently. The fate of the latter, the lolling indolent people, had been envisioned some 25 years earlier by Etty again, whose The Destroying Angel and Demons of Evil Interrogating the Orgies of the Vicious and Intemperate long title, <coughs> it resembles. Virtue in Etty's painting appears only in the figure of the powerful angel up here at the top, laying waste to iniquity. The angel and those slayed, sport, not surprisingly, well-developed, mostly naked bodies, the property of both the virtuous and the vicious. The message is akin to that of Reglander, that there are consequences to this moral choice, a choice conveyed in both cases highly effectively by the deployment of the naked body. Yet the condemnation of nakedness, however strident, was in a sense always doomed for clothing. As I said, that seeming index of respectability was a reminder of the first transgression. Absent Adam and Eve's fall from grace, the naked human was a paradisiacal innocent, and it was this state to which Kingsley and others aspired. When I feel very near God, Kingsley wrote to his wife, and here's my, my title quotation, I always feel such a need to undress, as if everything which was artificial jarred me. What a bliss, he says to Fanny, to see that you feel the same. The bared body of Mary Magdalene in Etty's paintings, the taut bodies of Blake's visions, the nude contemplations of Charles and Fanny Kingsley, all represent a rejection, I think, of secular form, a desire to return to earlier and purer forms of faith, untouched by materialism, though palpably not by physical desire. There was a longing for innocence, even as they embraced the carnal. 
There was never a moment then in which the unclothed human form was not, in the world of Christianity, both a negative and a positive, whether in doctrinal practice, artistic representation, or exegesis of holy texts. Nakedness was wielded by a variety of actors for widely differing ends. It could represent the rejection of religion, the presence of evil, and a lack of proper control. But it could also, as we've seen, signify ascetic holiness, heightened devotion, or the glory of creation. One of the most characteristic beliefs in evangelical Protestantism was that nakedness in all and any circumstances constituted obscenity. One notable exception to this tendency to abominate all and any nudity was the work of the Swedish theologian Emanuel Swedenborg, active in the mid-18th century and a major influence on Blake. Swedenborg linked, Swedenborg linked spiritual progress and nakedness in radical ways. In his vision of heaven, detailed in a number of his writings, the angels were not richly robed, but naked. In their innocence, they had no need of clothing. Nakedness, he wrote, corresponds to innocence. Swedenborg reimagined nakedness as the ultimate grace, but like Blake, his was a minority position crowded out by a more austere and punishing perspective that equated nakedness with sexual sin and often took a virulently anti-Catholic stand, uh, as, of course, you saw with the Puritan stuff. The Christian morality movements that sprang up in the West in the 19th and 20th century regarded control of sexual desire as a first principle and were virulent in their opposition to the display of the naked human body. Anti-Catholicism, long a strong force among radical Protestants, often focused on what suspicious evangelicals saw as the licentiousness of Catholic doctrine. Low church and evangelical Protestants condemned all and any instances of nudity. On occasion, they took matter into their own hands, destroying works they found offensive. When the Council of Trent decreed that lascivious works were inappropriate in church settings, they were responding in large part to acts of iconoclasm in which offended believers smashed works they found inappropriate. By the 19th century, such acts had become rarer, but were by no means unknown. In his remarkable memoir of growing up among the evangelical Plymouth Brethren, Edmund Goss tells the story, I'm quoting, of a flighty, excited young creature from his provincial congregation who, visiting London, was taken by some relatives to the Crystal Palace. And this is a fairly lengthy quote from Goss. In passing through the sculpture gallery, Susan's sense of decency had been so grievously affronted that she had smashed the naked figures with the handle of her parasol before her horrified companions could stop her. She had, in fact, run amok among the statuary and had been arrested and brought before a magistrate who dismissed her with a warning to her relations that she had better be sent home to Devonshire and looked after. Susan Flood's return to us, however, was a triumph. She had no sense of having acted injudiciously or unbecomingly. She was ready to recount to everyone in vague and veiled language how she had been able to testify for the Lord in the very temple of Belial, for so she poetically described the Crystal Palace. And if you think Susan is no longer with us, uh, my most recent example of this is from 2010, when um, a female truck driver from Montana took a crowbar to um, a, a, an artwork in the Denver, in the, in the Denver um, Museum of Art in Colorado. Mm. Yep. Giving evidence before the Select Committee on the National Gallery in 1850, the British artist Thomas Owens recalled another such occasion on which, I quote, a man in a moment of very moral furious rage took up his crutch and struck the picture, a painting Owens owned that indeed was an offensive picture. Such behaviour may have been relatively rare by the 19th century, but the sentiments animating it were not. 
the shocked tones of an American Protestant clergyman travelling in Italy in the 1840s typified the anti-Catholic diatribe of its, era, of its era. At Pisa, he wrote, I saw several females prostrate before the statues of Adam and Eve, which were exhibited in a state of almost entire nudity. Naked forms in marble abound in all the churches. Nothing struck, with, struck me with more force than incidental circumstances like these as indicating the gross ignorance, credulity, superstition and dishonesty abounding in the Catholic Church. Both popular and pornographic fiction trafficked visually and verbally in tales of women frolicking with priapic monks or more ominously raped by them. Um, and my picture here has a trigger warning attached, very modern, um, because it is a piece of pornography. But it's a very typical example of the kind of thing that got, um, that got both said about and drawn about uh, that Catholic, Catholic priests, yes, quite, that Catholic priests were up to. Matthew Lewis's 1796 deeply anti-Catholic Gothic novel, The Monk, warned of the excessive sexuality that could erupt from enforced monastic celibacy. Lewis conjured cross-dressing clerics, out-of-wedlock pregnancies and eroticised ghosts. Tracts such as the 18th century work the clothes laid open, or the adventures of the priests and nuns with some account of confessions and the lewd use they make of them, published in London. Uh, most of the stuff's French, but that was published in London. Delighted in details of sexual misconduct, while pornography, as you can see here, and even mainstream fiction reveled in fantasy-laden <coughs> nunnery tales. And in a parliamentary debate in 1852, Henry Drummond, the MP for West Surrey, and author of A Plea for the Rights and Liberties of Women Imprisoned for Life Under the Power of Priests, asserted that nunneries are prisons and I have seen them so used. Such literature relied on a gendered reading of the ills of Catholicism, seen as an overly physical faith, which would be the downfall, as you can see here, of womanly respectability. This animus against the hypocritical lusts of religious men and women, though commonly articulated through a strident Protestant anti-Catholicism, also fueled a robust anti-clerical literature, hence the, the importance of the French here, which detailed the lustful excesses accorded priests by their privileged access to the young and in the confession box. But artists choosing biblical themes had to be attentive to the boundaries which the faithful policed even where art's relationship to the church was conceived in less oppositional ways. Most Protestant art in the 19th century strove to avoid idolatry. Crucifixes, too Catholic in their imagery, were mostly absent in church decoration, and painting found favour over potentially sensuous sculptures. 3D obviously gives you a sensuality that you can't get um, in a painting. Nonetheless, there were highly influential thinkers in the 19th century for whom art was the principal expression of the divine. The deeply devout Anglican politician William Gladstone believed art had the power to redeem fallen natures, while the pre-Raphaelite artist William Holman Hunt saw art as a means, and I quote, to make more tangible Jesus Christ's history and teaching. Controversy over artistic form and religious context was hardly new, of course, in the 19th century. How to represent divine figures, how to depict different kinds of worshippers, how to test the limits of the devotional, all well-worn topics. And while there had always been controversy and debate over the appropriateness, status and respectability of exposed bodies, that complexity and multiplicity had by no means lessened over time. 
Although Etty and other artists might find their honour and intentions questioned in some quarters, they nonetheless continued both to exhibit and to sell. Among Etty's patrons were, interestingly enough, Anglican clergy, presumably undisturbed by whispers of the artist's unseemly dwelling on naked bodies. Indeed, this painting um, was owned by the Reverend E.P. Owen, and it is pretty voluptuous, is Venus and her satellites. And the Reverend Isaac Spencer also commissioned a Magdalen painting from William Etty. Nakedness and religion continue, I would argue, even now, to ferment strong feelings, as many artists have found to their cost. Such debates, of course, are not exclusive to art. A proliferation of literature debating whether nudism and Christianity are compatible exists alongside articles in the popular press that report on congregations worshipping nude, the modern equivalent of the early modern pamphlets denouncing Adamite sects. In 2004, the Times... The London, uh, yes, the London Times, reported on the construction of America's first nudist church, and a decade later, the decision of the Whitetail Chapel in Virginia to permit worshippers to attend services naked briefly made headlines like this internationally, the press dutifully reporting the pastor's belief that the decision followed logically from the book of Genesis. But you see, the journalists could not resist. They just couldn't resist going for the public. Love them, just love them. And in 1981, Pope John Paul II addressed the question of nakedness at some length, praising modesty, but noting too the circumstances in which it might be acceptable. Immodesty, he concluded, is present only when, the naked, when nakedness plays a negative role with regard to the value of the person, when its aim is to arouse concupiscence. There is thus plenty of contemporary debate about religion and the naked body. Modern evangelicals contest John Paul II's position, he is Catholic after all, <laughs> regarding nakedness as a categorical expression of sin. <clears throat> At the evangelical Bob Jones University, a modern bowdlerism retouches artworks to avoid offending its principal constituency. They have wrecked a number of works of art. <coughs> Beyond the world of evangelicalism, naked Christ images in Britain, New Zealand, the United States, Germany, and elsewhere have been met with protests. And in some cases, the work has, as a result, been withdrawn. In the early 1990s, Catholic devotees staged, staged monthly rosary vigils protesting the genitalia that the Catalonian sculptor Josep Suberax gave the Christ figure in his work completing the passion facade of Antoni, Antony Gaudi's Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona. And as you can see, he was made to add a loincloth. In 2001, Deborah Masters, an American artist, added a loincloth to her crucified Christ mural at a New York airport after protests from the Catholic League, although she claimed rather oddly that it had always been her intent to do so and that she had simply forgotten to have it. <laughs> Four years later, Würzburg Cathedral removed a painting by Michael Triegel, the one you can see here, from an exhibition because in it the resurrected Christ emerged naked from the grave. The New Zealand sculptor Lou Summers, who died of cancer earlier this year, did the same in 2005 at the request of church officials at the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament in Christchurch in, in the South Island of New Zealand. The exhibition in 1984 of British artist Edwina Sandy's naked female Jesus, Christa, in New York's Episcopal Church of St. John the Divine, was cut short by protests. Some three decades later, interestingly, just in 2016, the church launched its Christa project, bringing back Sandy's work as part of an exhibition of images 
of the suffering Jesus. And the list goes on. I could, I could go on for another 15 minutes with examples like this, but I won't. In every case, the objections raised encompassed both a sense of insult to faith and the dangers of an encroaching secularism. In these contemporary articles, we see a clash of sensibilities, pitting the faithful against what they see as an increasingly godless and unmoored world. It's a position that ties believers to a long-standing discomfort with nudity as original sin, but ignores the discomforting presence of the naked human body in theological reasoning and the secularism perceived as undercutting it. We can see in this the impossible yearning to separate sexuality and religion, perhaps at its height in the 19th century, as an impulse which clearly continues to this day. The tenacious power of religion and the potency of the human naked form thus continue to royal contemporary spiritual sensibilities quite as much as they have done for hundreds of years. Although public expressions of nakedness may now be more common, the long reach of theological reasoning and religious belief continue nonetheless to exert a significant <coughs> degree of control. So to sum up, in 1959, the playwright and polymath Lawrence Langner published an Adlerian psychoanalytic test on the phenomenon of human clothing. Langner drew heavily, obviously, on Alfred Adler's ideas of the inferiority complex and claimed that the principal impetus for clothing lay in the desire to emphasise human distance from animality. But he also linked this aim to religion, writing that, and I quote, in our Hebraic Christian civilization, we seek by every means to hide our relationship to the animal world and to relate ourselves to God. A more potent acceptance of the deep link between the unclothed human body and the religions of the world would be hard to imagine. And indeed, Langler goes further, implicating not just the Judeo-Christian tradition, but other major religions as well. Langler's work may have fallen into obscurity, and his assertion that evolutionary progress depended on clothing may strike the modern reader as a peculiar remnant of a more celebratory age. Nonetheless, his insight that the clothing of nakedness was a preeminent an urgent concern, realised in large part through the strictures, practices and beliefs of religion, is surely upheld by the long history of strife, even into the present, in which the naked body has been mired. Nudity and nakedness have long been a doctrinal combat zone, one which the encroachments of secularism have, it would seem, done little to calm. Thank you. Thank you.